Coming up today, how a sudden tragedy led to a ministry that's reaching one of the largest demographics in the church. I was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I had no college education. I had no idea what was ahead. And little did I know, 30-something years later, God would take it all and use it to minister to other people. And a neurosurgeon explains the connection between our brains and the way we process grief. In real time, Jeff, you can see the brain change and improve its function in response to what people think about. Then, a former police officer tells how the power of Christ led him through the darkest times. The things you see each and every day and experience, and you never forget, but yet you have a peace about yourself. It's the weekend of December 9th and 10th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. When you walk into church on Sunday and look around you, chances are you'll overlook some of the neediest people and one of the greatest ministry opportunities to be had. We're talking about single mothers. Dr. O'Shea Lowry of Entrusted Hope Ministries is doing everything she can to make sure these women and their families aren't forgotten. Dr. Lowry, good to have you with us today. It's good to be with you. Thank you. How big is this demographic of single women in our churches? Uh, very big. I, I tell people all the time, single moms is one of your biggest mission fields today in the United States. Uh, just a large uh, population of single mothers, and uh, they are growing. Shay, why are you drawn to single mothers in particular? It was on um, April the 27th in 1990. I was visiting my sister back home. Um, my two children um, and I were at her home, and she received a phone call, and it was my mother, and she said, keep her there. There's been an accident. And my husband had uh, been in an accident on his job site. That's all that I was told. And so I was rushed to the hospital, and I was 24 years old. And when I got to the hospital, the doctor took me into a room, and um, he sat me down, and he said, I'm sorry to inform you, but your husband was killed this morning. He was electrocuted uh, on his job site, killed instantly. And um, I remember, you know, after a time spending with the doctor and family members, you know, they were coming in, and I looked up, and my two babies, then two and a half and three and a half, they were walking into that room. I kept requesting, I, I just want to see my husband. And so they finally allowed me that time with him. And afterwards, I walked into a restroom, and I looked into uh, this mirror, and I said out loud, God, what am I going to do? I was a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no college education. I had no idea what was ahead. And little did I know, 30-something years later, God would take it all and use it to minister to other people. We often say that uh, someone going through a trial may be used by God to help others, and, and Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. How has your own experience of grief equipped you in helping other hurting women? Well, the Lord uh, allowed me—I've uh, never remarried. I'm, you know, in my 50s today, I've never remarried since that day of my husband's death. And so, you know, it was the Lord's plan that I live out, you know, the next many years as a single mom. And so I, I know what single moms go through. I know the fears. I know the different things that they face. And so when I—I I, I guess it was in my latter 40s, the Lord called me to seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And as I was finishing up 
my master's degree, I was asked by a singles pastor at First Baptist Dallas, he was the singles pastor then, if I would teach a single mom Sunday school class. And so he called the meeting to discuss the class. Of course, I said yes, that I would. And he gave me permission to name it. And so I went to the Lord and prayed, and the Lord gave me strong and courageous, Joshua 1-9, you know, be strong and courageous. And the singles pastor called a meeting, and he called that meeting on April the 27th, not knowing that was the exact day my husband had been killed. Oh, wow. And I remember sitting in, in that meeting, and I remember thinking, what an amazing God you are. Mm. You're about to take everything you allowed me to go through, and you're going to help other people. Mm. And so I started teaching the Sunday school class, and the Lord planted a seed in my heart to develop a ministry that churches from anywhere in the nation could bring in and help to minister to their single moms. And there, therefore, came Strong and Courageous Ministry. If you go to First Dallas website today, you see you will see it on there. It is now a part of First Baptist Dallas Ministries. Mm. They allowed me to start it there. They supported it. Uh, they still do. And we've seen a lot of single moms be helped. And there's not a time that I sit down with a single mom and I listen to her and I hear her that you know, you look back and, and you understand God let you live it out to be able to help other people. And I want to say this to a single mom today that may be listening. You may be standing in front of a mirror right now saying, Lord, what am I going to do? I want to tell you that even though you may not know, He knows and He is faithful and He's going to bring you through uh, this to be able to turn around and help other people. So the statistics seem to indicate that if uh, 25% of American children live in single-parent homes, 80% of those are led by single moms. That's a huge number. How effective are churches today when it comes to reaching these women? I think there are a lot of churches that are very effective. They're doing great uh, great work with single moms ministries. I think there are other churches that would perhaps uh, love to be more uh, effective. We are, uh, we have churches now reaching out to the Strong and Courageous Ministry. That is an outreach of Entrusted Hope Ministries, uh, and it's a single mom's ministry. And they're reaching out and asking us to come and train them in the area of single mom's ministry. So I think people, churches today, you know, we are really hearing from um, uh, quite a few churches and interest of how can we uh, effectively reach and minister uh, to single mothers. So, you know, you've got both scenarios. You've got churches that are doing great work, and you've got other churches that, that are saying, hey, we, we want to do better in reaching uh, single mothers. I can First Baptist Dallas, and we have one of the best single moms ministries, uh, Strong and Courageous Ministry, and, you know, we're doing a lot of things to reach and minister to single mothers. Uh, we have a, a great children's ministry youth program uh, that are reaching, you know, their kids when they come to church. So, uh, you know, our church, uh, we have a great model that other churches are learning from and reaching out and wanting to know, hey, what are y'all doing to reach your single moms? What are some of the unique challenges that single mothers are facing that warrant a special ministry to them? I know there are many things. What are some of those things? Well, you know, they they face loneliness. Uh, they face financial uh, hardship. You know, I, I want to say there are a lot of great single dads out there that are co-parenting well with the single mom. But there are also single moms 
that they do not have any help. I, I know of one particular single mother uh, that I have in my life that uh, she, uh, she's she got it all on her own. You know, she's got all of the financial responsibilities. And so a lot of single moms have the weight of that. They are working two and three jobs. Uh, they have, you know, they feel like they have the world on their shoulders. They have to take care of all of the homework, all of the shopping, the cleaning, the cooking, the jobs. If there are issues at school, they have to go handle that. They have to be, you know, I, I think a lot of single moms think they have to be mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And I used to be one of those single moms. And I thought, I, I, for years, I thought I've, I've got to be the strong dad side and, and the mom, too. And when my kids became uh, high schoolers, I heard a pastor preach to single moms, and I will never forget, he said, don't try to be the dad, just be the mom. Mm -hmm. And it was so freeing, you know, to me to hear that. But a lot of single moms, they they try to do both roles, and it's just a lot on them. And so they they face all all manner of things, but when they get plugged into a church, the church can come alongside of those single moms and their children and do life with them and just the loneliness that they may be feeling, and they're a part of a church family. Our guest today is Dr. O'Shea Lowry of Entrusted Hope Ministries. Her website is entrustedhopeministries.org, and you can check out her latest book, My Life as a Single Mother, uh, Seven Biblical Lessons for Transforming Your Life and Family. That's again at entrustedhopeministries.org. Dr. Lowry, thanks so much for your ministry and for your encouragement today and for uh, helping us understand how we can better minister to single mothers. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Sometimes instead of bringing joy and warmth, the holiday season can bring stark reminders of the hardships we're going through or the people missing in our lives. If that's not your case today, the question becomes, what will you do when the massive thing hits your life? We're going to talk about that now with Dr. W. Lee Warren. He's a prominent neurosurgeon and host of the Dr. Lee Warren podcast. He's also author of the book, Hope is the First Dose. Dr. Warren, thanks for being with us today. So glad and honored to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. As a physician, you deal with physical pain and the neurological makeup of the human body. What led you to write on the topic of emotional pain? Well, it's basically life experience. I was deployed to the Iraq war and had a lot of traumatic experiences there. And then I eventually kind of put my life back together after learning how to survive PTSD. And then in 2013, our 19-year-old son, Mitchell, was stabbed to death. And so we went through massive family trauma. And along the way, as a neurosurgeon, I've been through a tremendous amount of patient care involving people in their last days and in their worst moments. So I felt like I had a lifetime of hard things that I had helped other people process and then had to learn how to process myself. And so I've used the writing of Hope is the First Dose as a way to try to unpack a a solid plan to help people find hope again when they lose everything. You know, hearing your story, it's amazing to me that you were able to step out of yourself and really to analyze how you were thinking about the loss of Mitch. How important is that process and how do we do that? Well, I think it's critically important. Unfortunately, our brains are sort of hardwired for negativity and especially after trauma and tragedy happen. We hear a lot of internal stories and internal voices, and we have a lot of 
of our neurochemistry that gets altered. And, and if you're not aware of that, then you can think that you have to react to the way that your brain makes you feel instead of understanding that God gave us the ability to interact with and choose to respond to those thoughts mm-hmm. in a healthier way. What was it that caused you and your wife to realize that you actually had choices in the ways that you would respond to suffering? You know, it was interesting. It was shortly after we went back to work after losing Mitch, we owned our own business. uh, And Lisa and I, uh, Lisa ran our practice in those days. And we worked in the Auburn University MRI Research Center and had an opportunity one day to go down and watch some patients who were having uh, research done on them in the what they call functional MRI, which is where you can actually see what's happening in the brain when people think about certain things. And as we were watching this, the researchers would say to the patient, okay, think about the worst thing you've ever felt. And you would see what happened in the blood flow in their brain and all the chemical changes that were going on. And then they would say, okay, now think about the happiest time you ever had in your life. And in real time, Jeff, you can see the brain change and improve its function in response to what people think about. And my wife said, hey, that's what Paul was talking about in (laughs) Philippians 4, when he said, think about better stuff and you'll feel better. That was really the first time that I ever thought about it in terms of neuroscience, like like how you think becomes how you live. And the Bible's full of other places that tell us that, like 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says you need to learn how to take your thoughts captive. And now we know why on the brain side, like when you think about better stuff, you get less anxious, you make better decisions, and you can begin to find hope again. That is amazing. In the book, uh, you talk about a treatment plan for moving beyond grief. Could you explain that for us? Yes. Yeah, so it just dawned on me that we have a plan for just about everything. And when you go to grade school, they teach you what to do if you catch on fire, right? Stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> and we teach people how to do CPR, and we teach people how to change flat tires, and we teach people how to operate defibrillators. But nobody talks about how to handle the emotional traumas that we all face. Like You probably don't know anybody who's actually burst into flames, mm even though they had a plan for it, but you know, everybody just about in your life has been through some kind of major emotional trauma or loss. And so I thought it was prudent to try to give people a plan. And so I came up with the the way that we managed to move forward after losing Mitch is learning to read the Bible with a trauma informed perspective. And I started noticing people like David and Asaph and the Psalms and people like the guy in Lamentations who realize in the middle of their problem when they're losing hope that they need to remember that God has been faithful to them and to their compatriots in the past and that God never breaks his promises. And then they begin to move towards his promises and they find hope not after the problem is already resolved, but in the middle of it. So you can see that over and over in the Bible. And I realized too for us that that you have to remember that this isn't the first time somebody's lost a child, or it's not the first time somebody's gotten a bad diagnosis. It's not even the first time you've been through something hard. And God was faithful enough to get you through it the first time. So that means that you cannot, you, you don't have to lose hope and despair because there's precedent for God helping people in such hard times. And so when you find when you find out that you don't have to lose hope, then you can start to clear your vision and see that all is not lost and that maybe there is a plan to move forward. Maybe there's a way to go forward. And the way to do that is like I said earlier, get your brain under control. We call it self-brain surgery on my podcast because it turns out that if you think about better things, your brain functions more properly, you can make better decisions, you improve the quality of your relationships, and you don't fall into 
harmful behaviors like drinking or despair or gambling or the things that people commonly do after they undergo great loss. And so then, then the third part of the treatment plan after the prehab, kind of getting your, getting your promises in order, remembering and moving towards hope. And the second part of doing the self brain surgery of thinking about your thinking and learning how to challenge negative thoughts and making better decisions. The third part is rehab, like mm-hmm. community and rehab and understanding that other people are necessary and helpful in your healing process. You can't do these things alone. We're not designed to be alone. That's why God gave us the church. So you've seen the connection as a physician between all of these things, the faith aspect, the the preaching to yourself aspect, as the Puritans used to say, and the, the need for the body. Absolutely. You can't you can't really survive major trauma or tragedy or any kind of massive thing without recognizing that you're part of a long story that goes all the way back to the garden of sin entering the world, and therefore people have to suffer in different ways. And God enters into that suffering and helps you through it and gives you eyes to see a path forward. And then other people come alongside and help you manage it. That's that You can't really get very far in life without that community. Yeah. Once again, the name of the book is Hope is the First Dose. You can find that book at christianbook.com. And if you'd like to know more about Dr. Warren or the podcast, visit the website wleewarrenmd.com. Dr. Warren, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for your time today. Such a great honor to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. God bless. One of the reasons God has ordained human governments is to provide day-to-day protection against evil. Without that, we couldn't have a stable society. Those who serve us as first responders are critical. Sir, stop right there. Turn around. Face away from me. Put your arms out like an From training at the police academy to the street, law enforcement has its unique dangers and rewards. The SWAT patch is... uh, Kevin Parker has served with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the U.S. Marshals Service, the FBI, and as a local police officer. He's now the Director of Security Operations at American Family Association. I spoke with Kevin in his office, and I noticed dozens of different uniform patches on the wall. The one in Afghan writing was a uh, provincial response commando unit I was assigned to in Afghanistan in Kunar province as an instructor. Okay. What is the one that says 1792 on the bottom? Uh, That's uh, a patch I received from a... uh, officer who works at Fort Knox. He said he rubbed it on a gold bar for me. <laughs> any gold <laughs> dust on it? <laughs> I didn't see any. I always had a uh, urge to help people and just had that notion in my mind. And I saw police officers, I respected them. Grew up with a, a strong grandfather in my life. My parents were divorced, but he raised me to respect uh, authority and, and just was something I really had on my heart, and I didn't become a police officer until I turned 32. A little late in life. A little late in life, and I'm kind of glad I did, you know, for maturity factor and, yeah. and all. And But I uh, went to the police academy and never was really a star student in school and whatnot, but I did graduate top of my class at the police academy and got the physical fitness award and shot expert and had A average in class, so I was... Well, so waiting late probably the, worked The top here. cop there. Yeah, that's neat. That's good. What was the most difficult day that you remember as a law enforcement officer? Um, 
it was when I returned home from Afghanistan, and I was uh, trying to heal up from some some wounds and things uh, from over there, and I was managing a police supply store. And my son had gotten into law enforcement Mm -hmm. in uh, November 1st of 2014, graduated top of his class, and in August, he was shot in the line of duty, August 15th, 2015, August 19th, 2015, mm-hmm. and about 4.30 in the morning, and uh, that was a bad day. So I got a call from the chief about 5.15 that morning, mm-hmm. and I knew it wasn't going to be good when I saw his name pop up. But the, the saving grace behind it all was I was able to sell the, the police department on a, a, a ballistic vest and measured my son for the vest that saved his life which was a, uh, such a blessing to look back on how God works, you know. It was just an amazing bad day, but great day. Mm. And, and how I came to be here at AFA, Walker Wildman, the vice president, grandson of the founder, and my son had been real good friends since kindergarten. And Walker was the first person I called to let know about his friend being shot. And Walker actually beat me to the hospital because <laughs> I had to wait on my wife a little bit. But <laughs> you got there first. Yeah, yeah we got yeah. there. So, and okay. uh, the doctor who treated my son yeah. is in my Sunday school class, Dr. Charles Pigott. Wow. He said he heard the patient on the on the stretcher say, "Hey, Dr. Pigott, how you doing?" And he realized who it was, and so he he really took good care of him. So. How has your faith in Christ sustained you in all of these different agencies that you've worked in? You've been in Afghanistan, you've seen combat. As a believer, how has that sustained you through all of that you've seen? It, it's given me a peace uh, about, about me and, and a sense of not having to worry so much every day when I went out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of my worst fears was, was leaving the house and not seeing my family again because you know, it's a real... It's a real thing that, you know, any day you don't know what you're going to come across. Just like with my son, uh, you never know. But I had a peace knowing that uh, I was saved and, and Jesus was my Lord and Savior and uh, had surrounded myself with friends who were believers and we were able to talk and fellowship and, and just keep each other uh, in check as far as our, our faith. and. The things you see each and every day you, you, and, and experience and uh, come across that you never forget yeah. and you can't unsee it, mm-hmm. but you, yet you have a peace about yourself, if that, yeah. if that makes sense. The law enforcement career is known for being one of the highest occupations for divorce rates. Right. Very, very difficult on spouses. Um, how were you able to maintain a healthy marriage throughout all of that? Well, through our faith, uh, my wife is a believer as well, and our children, and just uh, thankfully we've been able to communicate very well with each other and, and uh, pray together and, and uh, honor each other. And that was one of the things when I joined the Bureau of Narcotics, the, the instructor there had our families come in, our spouses, and he said, look to your right and your left. One, the one on your right and your left probably won't be married after a certain amount of time mm-hmm. being in law enforcement, especially in narcotics. And uh, she was 
we were both kind of offended by that. <laughs> so this December will be 35 years of marriage for us. Praise <laughs> the Lord. Amen. So uh, it was, it's been a blessing, and, and it couldn't have done it without the good Lord in my life. I, I don't know how uh, other people cope with things, but uh, he's, he's just been a rock and, and a, a peace for me. With the push to defund police departments in certain cities and really the failure of courts to hold criminals accountable, uh, lawbreakers have become emboldened, public trust has suffered in the, in the police. How does that affect law enforcement personnel and how can believers support them? Well, it, it, it really takes a toll on the police officers because some departments support them, some don't. Right. Uh, thankfully down here, uh, uh, in the South I should say, uh, our local police department is really supportive, but there's times when they tell you to take a step back and, and not be so proactive in, in policing uh, because of the, the current climate that's mm -hmm. going on as mm -hmm. far as police brutality cases and things. You, you kind of have to dial back and, and you, uh, you combat it by uh, you get more training on how to deal with people, how to talk to people. Okay. How to, and I've told my son from day one when he became a police officer, treat everyone you come in contact with, whether you arrest them or whatever, with the utmost respect. Treat them as a human being and let them know they are important. Although they broke the law and you had to take them to jail, it may be the only time they ever go to jail in their whole life, depending on how you treat them. If you treat them with respect, maybe they'll, hopefully they learn from it, and that's your ultimate goal. Okay. Is, is to put an end to their wanting to do bad or, or, mm -hmm. or do crime. So the way you, and I've had a lot of people that would come up to me afterwards, I'd see them in Walmart that I'd arrested or wherever out in public and they would say, I appreciate you being so kind to me. You know, I've had that happen several times. And he has too. So it, you can make a difference. And although the world is 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 turning upside down and crumbling before our eyes you still can make a difference you, you got a, a great platform as a police officer too to do that so it's it's been great what brings you the greatest satisfaction in the work that you do here at afa just knowing i'm working for for the lord for first and foremost because it's, it's a totally different climate here versus the public sector. Uh, you come to work, everybody's happy. Everybody's there's there's a lot of uh, animosity in the in the workforce mm -hmm. as police officers backstabbing whatever. But here, everybody's here for a greater good. Knowing I'm I'm doing the few things I can do and, and do uh, as far as traveling with them and whatever, it, it's just such a a, a blessing to me. Check out the article on Kevin Parker in this month's The Stand magazine. Next week on The Stand Radio, we'll look at the level of support for Israel and the sudden rise of anti-Semitism. We'll also take a look at the growth of homeschooling in the United States and what that means for the Christian worldview in the years to come. Today's program is available as a podcast with guest information and other resources. You can download a copy or send a link to a friend when you go to AFR.net slash podcast. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard today, send your email to thestand at AFA.net. We'd love to hear from you. And for important articles on culture, faith, and family, 
Get your free six-month subscription to The Stand magazine by going to afa.net slash The Stand. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening.